Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. We've known at least since the Obama administration that young people, particularly white, particularly male, are organized. Antifa is one of the uh, umbrella groups, uh, but there are nests of others. There were environmental uh, attacks that were happening uh, during the uh, Bush administration. It appears that Mr. George Soros helps to fund. That was Horace Cooper commenting on the riots that have rocked the nation since the shocking, sad and brutal death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Horace is a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research in the U.S. and co-chairman of the black activist group Project 21. And he has lots more to tell us. Why are people like Benjamin Crump, commentators like Don Lemon on CNN, making claims like we want this? It is the very kind of dangerous behavior that black Americans hear over and over again. In a moment, we'll bring you our full interview with Horace Cooper. You just heard sharing the widely held view, especially on social media, that billionaire money man and Democratic supporter George Soros is helping finance the protests and backing Antifa, the group singled out by President Trump for perpetrating extraordinary scenes of violence on American streets since the protests erupted. Even as most of the protesters acted in a peaceful manner and honoured the legacy of George Floyd. The latest particular claims on Soros, a supporter of liberal causes worldwide, have been challenged by many so we'll hear from Horace Cooper on this. And he has a new book out soon, How Trump is Making Black America Great Again, The Untold Story of Black Advancement in the Era of Trump. It's available from Simon & Schuster. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Well, it's grand to have you back. Horace Cooper is our guest. He taught constitutional law at George Mason University in Virginia. He is a black conservative activist and author of a new book on President Trump. And he shares with us his reaction to the riots and looting that have accompanied the national protests and public gatherings for George Floyd in the wake of Floyd's brutal death. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Well, it's reminiscent of the founding of my organization, Project 21. Um, it was 1992. Uh, we were uh, experiencing um, what started off slowly and then progressed to over a billion dollars worth of damage in the state of California over the Rodney King verdict in which uh, officers that had been charged uh, in his uh, beating 
um, were ultimately uh, acquitted of, uh, of the felony charges that had been placed against them. We watched as crowds developed, and these kinds of comments that we're seeing in a much more intense and even more dangerous fashion were being made at the time. Commentators were suggesting that it was a legitimate response to the angst and unhappiness with the outcome of a verdict to engage in the kind of criminal mayhem. We are now seeing, uh, I would argue, that on steroids, uh, the idea that the wanton destruction of the American system is warranted based on this incident with Mr. Floyd. It was wrong then, it is wrong now. So what exactly is Project 21? What is the agenda of this black conservative activist group? Well, one of the reasons that we formed, one of the primary reasons we formed, and it was done so in the wake of the 1992 riots, was to change the idea that when radicals stood up and said, we are speaking on behalf of blacks, that it was understood they are speaking on behalf of radical blacks, and that there are a large number of black Americans who don't identify uh, politically, who don't identify philosophically uh, with the radicals, who weren't being properly represented. And we wanted to make sure that we got that alternative perspective. We have lawyers, we have doctors, we have scientists, um, we have any number, sheriffs, we have any number of activists who are participants within Project 21 precisely because America, just like black America, is made up of people with a broad variety of views and perspectives. It was very, very frustrating to get the impression that Jesse Jackson's ideas and public policy prescriptions were universally those that were embraced by black America and that if anyone was interested in the concerns of black America, they need only talk to him. We are a organization that believes in the importance of faith. We believe in the importance of family. We believe in the importance of community networks. We believe in personal initiative and responsibility. We believe in free markets. We believe that the government that governs least governs best. And we believe that those very traits are the kinds of things that have made America such a remarkably exceptional country and as a consequence has created more wealth for black Americans, educated more black Americans, created more job opportunities for black Americans, created a higher standard of living for blacks than on any other place on the planet. And why would you expect black Americans to say, let's get rid of that and let's try untested schemes uh, newly neo-wrapped Marxism that we know can't work, couldn't theoretically even work, why would you throw out time-tested techniques 
that have succeeded and that many black Americans enthusiastically support for these new, untested, wild, fanatical theories. I asked Horace Cooper how much popular support his group has in the community. So we don't measure our um, support by membership. We measure our support by belief systems. And so a uh, sizable number, it depends on who's doing the survey. Are you asking Gallup? Are you asking Pew? Um, Who are you asking? But a sizable number of black Americans say that they are pro-life. A sizable number of black Americans actually almost universally say in higher numbers than any other group, any other racial group in America, that faith needs to play a central role in their lives and in the society as a whole. Um, A a substantially large number uh, believe in the death penalty, not quite a majority, but nearly more than 40 plus percent believe in the death penalty. Um, Some 55 percent regularly say that the traditional crime control techniques where law enforcement holds people accountable and punishes them are legitimate and useful in their community. Um, That um, personal responsibility is better than collective responsibility. So when we look out and see what black Americans are saying, how black Americans are living their lives, we see the broad support. In a nation of 300 plus million, it's not that surprising that you could have several hundred thousand, nearly a million active members who are Second Amendment advocates. These are the kinds of things that the mainstream media don't talk to us about. Well, I pressed Horace Cooper, a very successful middle class professional and national leader, once a senior counsel to the U.S. House Majority Leader Dick Armey, a Republican, to dispel any notions he may somehow be out of touch with the lives of the average black American. Well, a couple things. Uh, Let's go back to January of 2020. January of 2020, what we saw was unprecedented wealth creation in America and overwhelming a disproportionate amount of that was going to black America. We had from 2017 to 2020 some of the most dynamic increases in wealth in America and it was one of the few instances where the least among us actually did better than the best among us. In my personal life, my father was a Vietnam-era veteran and a city employee. My mother was a school teacher. Neither of them were college graduates when I was born. They waited to go to school after my brother and I were born. And in fact, my mother continued all the way till I was in junior high before she started her Ph.D. program and completed by the time I had finished high school. I got to learn personally and up close the value of education. I got to learn up close and personally 
the uh, importance of taking responsibility of people living out their lives in a way that understood that there were time-tested techniques that work that, and there were time-tested techniques of failure. My grandmother regularly helped us to understand with statements like, here she lives, lived during the time of the segregation south. I've never taken food stamps, and I never will. My grandmother, I got to watch her save and pay for her entire brand new house to be built without getting a loan. She didn't come from a wealthy household. She didn't come from a wealthy family. She came from sharecroppers. But what she did understand was the importance of personal uh, concern about economic matters, about making sure that you were careful with a dollar. My grandmother actually collected. Uh, there was a time when most people, when they got soft drinks, they were in glass containers. My, my grandmother would collect those. She would save those. She would turn those in. She lived in a way that showed what was possible, and she would point out those who were doing the kinds of things that would make their lives more difficult. The problem is that my grandmother's views were dominant for her generation. They're not given nearly the prominence that they deserve in the mainstream media today. Is there systemic racism in American society? See, I'm going to just tell you candidly, I don't understand what that concept means. Here's the truth. The truth is, in the beginning of the 20th century, actual racism involved people taking a rope and hanging people until they died. Mm. Actual racism uh, required going into communities and telling them not to show up on election day, and when they did, at the actual voting site, destroying their ballots right in their face. Actual mm. racism said, you can't eat here. You can't sleep here. My father actually had to have a special map that he used when he wanted to leave the state so that he could make sure that he could get gasoline and other necessities at locations that would actually serve blacks. What state was your dad in at that point? Oh, Texas. 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 Okay. And, you live in Texas. In, and you are based now in? I live in Virginia, but I've spent much of my mm. life in Texas. Yeah. So what I'm suggesting is there was actual racism. Mm. When my father, uh, my grandfather, not my father, when my grandfather wanted to start up a business, he wasn't allowed to own property. Now, there was no statute that said you can't have property. They simply said, no, you can't. But do you know how hardworking he was? Do you know how diligent he was? He found a white guy who went in, and in his name, the business was created. And my grandfather was so instrumental in the operation of the business, they never said, ah, it's now great. We're going to take it from you. They absolutely understood that but for him, 
this business wouldn't be possible, and except with paperwork filed with the state in every other way it was his business. Now, that's actual racism. This so-called systemic racism tries to pretend that being shot, being denied uh, your right to vote, having your ballot destroyed in front of you, being denied access to public services is in some way the functional equivalent of your next-door neighbor or your school teacher not waking up every day saying, you know, I haven't told a black person I love them today. Well, I'm sorry, my grandmother would reject that mindset, and I do today, and I wish more in the mainstream media would call people out when we see this claim that systemic racism, where there isn't a particular bad person, there isn't a particular bad victim, there's some generalized universal construct that is causing them, that is the functional equivalent of that. I absolutely promise you the people that are making that claim today couldn't make it a week in 1930 United States of America. Let's talk about the uh, rioting that has been taking place. Have the protesters, those on the streets, a grievance? Do they have a case to be made? So, Mr. Floyd was unfairly uh, murdered. Uh, his rights were denied. He was a victim of an atrocity. We live in a country based on the rule of law. I can tell you the things I just said about what happened to him and still not say, and then we should grab the four officers, line them up against a wall, take our pistol out, and shoot them. Now, if you agree with me that we shouldn't do that, then you need to ask, well, why? And the reason why is that we actually don't have a system of vengeance. We have a criminal code where we hold people accountable. Our system actually has trials, a jury, and its purpose is it's not axiomatic. You don't know the outcome going in. Our entire system is actually predicated on the idea that scores of guilty people may go free so as to minimize the likelihood that an innocent person will be held accountable for an action that they didn't commit. A, a, a person who tells me that our system is unfair because we can't guarantee the outcome of the those that committed this atrocity being held accountable is a person that is wishing to throw out a very remarkable, ahistorical, let me say that again, ahistorical, this concept that we use is one that is unique on the planet in terms of time. You go backwards in time 300 years and you find it harder and harder and harder and harder to get a concept where the criminal system predicated itself on letting guilty people go free if that was the best way to make sure that innocent people weren't held culpable. I hear people making these claims. You should not, you absolutely should not 
demand that the prosecution make charges that the prosecution doesn't believe that can be supported. We witnessed in black America where people were accused and before we could even get to a grand jury, let alone a trial, mob justice came out and they were hung or they were shot. We deplore that behavior and yet when I listen, it seems to me it looks a lot the same. I would argue that those so-called progressives need to rethink their condemnation of the racists of the late 19th and early 20th century because many of those people operated on the basis of political expediency. They threw principle to the wind, and today progressives operate on the basis of political expediency, and they throw principles to the wind. Do you think there are sinister outside forces infiltrating the riots paid to gin up trouble? Oh, absolutely. Um, sinister might not be the right word. Um, a very diligent, dedicated advocates who hate the American system are seated in with the protesters, and they are um, all across the country participating in these events. Uh, they have put out manifestos in which, if you read them carefully, you understand that they reject the idea of the rule of law. They reject the idea of individual accountability and, and responsibility. They reject the idea of private property. I don't know how many memes your audience may have seen of people saying, hey, why are you so concerned about the rioting and the looting? They have insurance. Well, one, actually, that's not the test for whether behavior is appropriate or not, whether or not you can get your property replaced. But two, we've been under a pandemic home restriction that has decimated the economic households of untold numbers of families. How many of them have had to stop making their insurance payments so that they could make sure that they didn't have, uh, that they had food and a place to live? When their property is now destroyed, not only do they not have insurance, you've now said to them, you're going to pay the price. You are personally going to pay the price, even in your economic depravity, for somehow benefiting. And by the way, this was true whether people were black or white. Disproportionately, black and minority households have been impacted by the rioting and the looting. Who are these outside groups and who's financing them and what evidence have we? We've known at least since uh, the Obama administration um, that uh, young people, particularly white, particularly male, but uh, young people are organized. Antifa is one of the uh, umbrella groups, uh, but there are nests of others. Um, there were environmental uh, attacks that were happening uh, during the uh, Bush administration uh, right at the turn of the 21st century in which the FBI identified uh, these similar types of networks. 
It appears that Mr. George Soros helps to fund. Um, one of the things that I am hopeful of is that the Department of Justice will actually begin looking carefully and closely, following the resources, because if you cross over state lines for the purpose of engaging in actions of mayhem, rioting, or those that deprive others of their civil rights, you will violate federal law, and it will be helpful for the Department of Justice to reveal. But there are lots of reports uh, you can see uh, on an individual basis. You can see video that people have been taking where you see these individuals bringing bricks, where you see these individuals bringing Molotov cocktails, um, all manner of this activity that is not spontaneous, is not coming um, uh, from the black community, and is a result of an ongoing hostility to the existing nature of America as we know it. Why would George Soros, a very wealthy man, finance such behavior? Well, why would some of the um, professors at some of our most elite institutions support and advocate many of these uh, policies? The irony is that many people like Mr. Soros, who have benefited from living on a planet where prosperity was possible, where the rule of law protected property rights, and it made it possible to obtain substantial amount of resources, is advocating the very policies that will make that nearly impossible uh, for those that come later. We have professors that do the same thing. You may make $160,000, $300,000 as a professor or head of a department, and you may be erroneously under the impression that income comes from the university, not from the labor and effort of enterprising people from all walks of life. Many of these academics make claims and, and advocate policies that would preclude people in future generations from being able to even provide the very wealth that was given to these same institutions. We'll be back after the break. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others, leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls where war ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, where war ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. Now, before we pick up on my interview with Horace Cooper, we are saddened by the brutal 
way that George Floyd died and justice must be done. Now, many Americans, the vast majority out there in all communities, black, white, Latino and so on, are also repulsed and horrified by the scenes of looting in the past week or so. The public protests and rallies and memories in honour of George Floyd are completely understandable, and yet there is work to be done. Surely part of the answer is economic empowerment for all Americans and Americans who feel sidelined and have no stake in the great American dream. There are probably many of the people out there protesting and hurling stones and smashing windows, throwing Molotov cocktails, who simply have nothing to lose. No property, no home, no apartment, small or large, no business, no IT startup, no small farm, no community garden that they tend, and no jobs in many cases, which is understandable during the shutdown, but many have no jobs in normal times. They need successful and inspiring role models, and they need heroes in their community. How we change that may not be as difficult as some leaders are trying to convince us, but it starts with families, good hearts, and more enlightened political leadership. And one more not such a wee thing, let's have more high-tech industries and businesses free enterprise with more generous tax breaks in underserved communities and let these communities shape their own destinies and tomorrows from within. The scenes of rioting in the past days in New York City have been horrendous. We're recording this episode near New York City. I asked Horace Cooper how much support is out there for the looting and mayhem, Molotov cocktails that we've witnessed on the streets in the wake of the George Floyd protests nationwide. Well, that's a big question. Um, a couple things. One is it really does matter are we going to appease or are we going to confront directly? The truth is this is not an overwhelmingly popular set of activities that are going on. Um, uh, burning down buildings or police stations, robbing um, ATMs, um, uh, high-end uh, shops and the like um, may seem like it's something that is just happening so much everywhere that everybody must support it. But the evidence indicates that actually a very small group of people are engaging in this behavior. If that very small group of people are held accountable, it is going to come to a stop. If it doesn't, then we're in for a really, really difficult time. When I heard the governor of Minnesota say candidly that he had refused to bring in the National Guard because the National Guard represented the very type of force that he said people were concerned and complaining about in the case of Mr. Floyd's death. And in the name of that concern, untold millions if not half a billion dollars worth of damage 
was done in Minneapolis, and a disproportional amount of that was done in the black community. So, in 2008 and nine, America went through what was recorded as the worst recession since the Great Depression. It's referred to as the Great Recession. It officially ended by the second year of the Obama administration. For black America, it was six years before they caught back up to where they were before the Great Recession started. What has happened now in Minneapolis if in the name of I didn't want to have hurt feelings is going to lead to black Americans in those particular impacted communities probably taking five or ten years to just get back to where they were. If you say it's unjust and you say it's unfair that there's a divergence between black America wealth and white America wealth, why on earth could any progressive governor countenance letting that wealth get destroyed so as to widen the difference rather than allow it to continue narrowing? Last thing I'll say is this. During the three years of the Trump administration, we saw some of the fastest and greatest growth in our economy, and in particular disproportionately with black America. In January of 2020, black men were preparing by survey to give the single largest amount of support to a Republican president in 40 years. What happens will depend on how long this rioting and looting is allowed to occur. Project 21 lays out its agenda for improving the lives and the economies for black America, blueprint for a better deal for black America. Could you kind of give us a summary of what is in that document? So I recommend your audience take a look. It's called the Blueprint for a Better Deal for Black America. Here's what's misleading about it. Most times when you see something like that, it means i got to take from a white person or a brown person or, or whatever the, the racial group is and hand to a black person. Our recommendations are exactly the opposite. We believe that we can grow this economy. We believe that we can improve this society. And we believe that when that happens, we can all prosper and benefit. We don't need to be at war with one another. These are race-neutral, pro the historical things that have made America successful. We rely on the free market. We rely on limited government. We rely on encouraging stronger and greater family bonds and development. These techniques, I recommend that your audience take a look and you'll see if you apply it to Asian households, to white households, Native American households, it doesn't matter. You'll see these techniques will actually improve lives. And that's why we wanted to make sure, because we've been watching. 
We didn't actually have to go to White America and find it. You could look in Black America and see these things are happening. It's just that the mainstream media never talks about it. The opportunity zones that came out of the current administration, do they fit into uh, the blueprint for a better deal? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's one of our, our, our recommendations. In fact, we had quite a few... Uh, recommendations that have been adopted. The Department of Education has adopted several of our uh, recommendations. Um, the, the, the Department of Energy has adopted. EPA has adopted. We are working um, with local and state governments. We went to Ferguson, Missouri, and sat down with the elected leadership and talked to them about uh, the policies, including shifting. This is something that seems complex but isn't shifting the responsibility for compliance with regulations away from law enforcement so as to make sure that when Americans encounter law enforcement it is because the law officer is carrying out a traditional uh, role uh, preventing a rape preventing an assault stopping a robbery rather than making sure your car uh, has a working tail light or um, the brakes work properly or your grass is at the right height. These things need to be done by non-law enforcement so as to allow in the black community and in other communities where there is poverty people not to be worried that the encounter with law enforcement is just about going to get a new fine. Find ways so that law enforcement can be welcomed in its traditional role, and if you're going to be the tax man, let the tax man come, and if he's unpopular, he's unpopular with white America, he's unpopular with Asian America, and everyone, and then it's incumbent upon the tax man to figure out what he or she is going to do to be less unpopular. So new strategies for law enforcement and policing in black and other communities. We, we actually think um, we could do this nationwide, uh, that particular concept. But another one is that we're asking for law enforcement day on Sunday or in other um, faith traditions uh, when they gather. Bring representatives of the law enforcement community in and let them talk about how they serve our community. And let us see them in a setting where they can be welcomed and appreciated. Again, this isn't about black or white or brown. This is about understanding that we have a circumstance that in too many instances is distorted. Black men are actually overrepresented in law enforcement. It is the height of irony that it is a talking point of progression. Nationwide. Nationwide, yeah. yes. That law enforcement is anti-black. Fascinating. So their numbers, they're represented proportionate to their size in the community. Yes. Black American, black American men are uh, slightly less than 7% of the population, and they're nearly 9.5% of all law enforcement officers. So why the antipathy in some communities, in black communities, to patrol cars cruising through? We have many professional, let's take Mr. Benjamin Crump. Mr. Benjamin Crump is supposed to be an officer of the court, is purportedly an officer of the court. He comes out and he says, I talked to the family, 
and that's an important proviso. I talked to the family, and they want the officers charged with the death penalty. He knows, he knows as an attorney that what you seek as a victim isn't the relevant factor in actually charging. What is relevant are the circumstances, the statutes, and the ability to achieve a conviction. If you overcharge in Minneapolis, you're going to likely get an acquittal. He knows that. And this is why the American Bar Association says to prosecutors, it's important that you actually charge the crime that the people have committed and not undertake efforts to overcharge. One, it creates the impression in the public eye that the criminal justice system doesn't work. And two, it is improper and unfair and uh, arguably unconstitutional to hold a person accountable for crimes that they didn't actually commit. We started this conversation off with the idea that our system is designed, our criminal justice system is designed that even the guilty may go free rather than have innocent parties unduly be held accountable. Why are people like Benjamin Crump, commentators like Don Lemon on CNN making claims like we want this? It is the very kind of dangerous behavior that black Americans hear over and over again. You hear it from President Obama with his most recent statement. You hear it from Nancy Pelosi, the, the Speaker of the House. A number of prominent leaders on the left regularly say to black America, there is no reason for the circumstance that you find. There's no reason for what they call the disproportionate level of incarceration. There's no reason for the disparate nature of the incomes of whites versus blacks. If you normalize for educational attainment, there is a negligible, negligible difference in the net wealth of uh, uh, American households. And in fact, black women edge out the others. Once you just set both parties or all parties being compared on the basis of wealth. With regard to prison populations, if you look at the number of people who are robbed, the number of people who are raped, the number of people who have had their homes burglarized or their cars stolen, we're supposed to believe that those elevated number of people who had this happen are lying and claiming that blacks did this to them. That a black woman on the way home from uh, the pharmacy who is assaulted would lie and tell us that a black person did this to us. Rosa Parks, before she died, left Alabama and moved up north to Detroit. She was assaulted. We're supposed to believe in her home she was assaulted. We're supposed to believe she lied 
and said it was a black, it was several black men who did this to us, to her. Overwhelmingly, the victims of these crimes tell law enforcement who the people were that did the crimes. And when you look at who they are identifying, I'm talking about the victims, people who would want their criminal attacker found. Overwhelmingly, the highest percentage is black men between the ages of 14 and 30. That is why there is a disproportionate number of people sitting in prison. If those people didn't rape, if they didn't engage in assault, if they didn't engage in burglary, and they didn't uh, engage in the mayhem that they do that cause their victims, when they are asked by law enforcement, to identify to help them figure out how to hold accountable, we would not have that disparity. And none of that is ever told to black America on any consistent basis. What about the calls by Obama and several leaders for the protesters to knock off the violence? Should they speak out more boldly? If black America were an actual country, there would be so many known countries that would be below it in terms of its economic power and well-being. That's India. That's Russia. That's China. That's Brazil. Known countries would be well below the prosperity and power and capability of black America. What Barack Obama, what Joe Biden, what Nancy Pelosi, what a number of progressive leaders ought to be doing is telling the truth. A country that once wronged you has made you the most prosperous, the most capable, the most literate, the most housed population of black people on the planet. This is not the place where people are going to crucify you. This is not the place where people wake up daily trying to deny you your hopes, your dreams, and your aspirations. This is the place where all of that is possible. That's the message that they ought to be saying. There is no reason, there is no reason when you see the, the attention that Mr. Floyd's death got, that you would assume that nothing would have been done unless we came out and held a rally. That's just simply fatuous. Yep. It just isn't justified by reality. What he should have said is, what are you doing to prepare yourself for the amazing possibilities when the pandemic ends and this economy takes off like a rocket ship. That's what President Obama should have been saying and instead he did. of what he did say. Are there any other reforms that could be made and should be made that would improve the lives of the black community? I know you lay a lot out in the blueprint for a better deal. For 54. 54 ideas. That's the kind of thing that is, is remarkable and exceptional. Now, I have a book that's coming out in less than 30 days, How Donald Trump is Making Black America Great Again, where I talk about just the last three years 
what has been happening within black America, what are the techniques and policy activities that are, and that's available by Simon & Schuster. Uh, Very interesting timing. When did you get to work on it? It's going to be great interest in the book. I would hope so. Um, What caught my attention was how many record low unemployment rate were achieved for black Americans under the Trump administration. Um, We reached seven separate records. Seven times it was the lowest in 50 years. So there's an unemployment rate that was captured by uh, the White House uh, and the Department of Commerce uh, in the early part of the 20th century, but the unemployment record that we now recognize and um, use only started about 50 years ago with the Department of Labor. And with that record, Donald Trump is on in three years, seven separate times for having the lowest unemployment rate for black Americans, seven separate uh, instances. Meanwhile, Barack Obama set records for the highest unemployment for black Americans. He set five separate records that will be very, very difficult to overcome. The contrast is remarkable, and yet it actually goes unremarked. What period of time does the book cover? Do you get into the shutdown, or is that too late to squeeze in a few pages on it? So I submitted submitted my final draft, actually, uh, Christmas. So it covers the Trump economic revival. We look forward to reading that, Horace, and I hope we catch up again. And let's hope justice is done in the George Floyd case and these riots stop and peace prevails. I'm confident that justice will be done. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.